And welcome to Rollin' Bones, the osteopathic podcast with your hosts, Dr. James and Dr. Dante. We're back. We're back. We're back together again, just the two of us. And, uh, you know, we have spent uh, quite a bit of time talking about stress in a very negative perspective. But today, we're going to talk about the positive effects of stress. And uh, keep in mind, the stress we've been talking about over the last three episodes are really uh, psychosocial types of stress. We're going into physiologic stress and the benefits of that on our body. All right. Full disclaimer, the multiple times I mentioned being stabbed and or bitten by saber-toothed tiger in the past several episodes was a metaphorical saber-toothed tiger. Uh, no fangs were delivered onto hypothetical humans. No imaginary people were harmed in the making of the previous episodes, I promise you. I was wondering where that uh, saber-toothed tiger skin that's on your living room floor came from. Probably from the boar. <laughs> oh, boy. And, you know, we we often give stress such a negative uh, light and in reality, we need stress for our bodies to grow. You, you think about uh, the development of um, the, the skeleton. I ha often have uh, patients come in or, or parents come in and tell me, why is my, my teenager slouched over? But they don't realize that it's because the bones are growing. They're stretching the muscles and the muscles haven't caught up yet to give them enough strength to stand upright. It's that stress from growth that needs to happen. You know, it's funny you mentioned specifically teenagers growing up. I, I had a new patient uh, just this past weekend. COVID has been a fascinating, took about 10 minutes, took about less than five minutes for us to get into COVID. Um, I had a new kid come in. He's 15, had a massive growth spurt in the past year, but because of all the um, limitations in what he could do from his normal life, he's basically been parked in front of his computer for a year because what else are you going to do in this environment? And um, he went from, according to the mom, having a very nice um, straight posture to basically looking like, you know, those droids from the uh, first like three episodes of Star Wars, as in like the prequel trilogy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Basically like roly-polies that fold out into a C-shape. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Bro, he, he was kyphotic. Like a battle droid? Yo, he was kyphotic AF. Oh, snap. Oh, man. But I explained to him, like, as much as we didn't like that posture, himself included, like, look, he he spent the past year basically in electronic school in Fortnite. What do you expect? Um, so I explained to her that it's been over the course of such a short time, we can honestly get past this. We can remodel this. But for the kid, it was a big learning point of, by the way, this is why posture matters. Um, because it wasn't that he just, you know, he was inactive for a year. It was not only was he inactive for a year, the dude grew like three inches. So his muscles weren't ready in a number of ways, and that was causing additional function in his body. And, you, you know, you look at a, you go, you look at the average 15 year old slouched over posture, rolled shoulders forward and fast forward 10 years. And even without a lot of um, interventions, most of the folks grow out of that slouched posture. Uh, and the reason why is because our body has these amazing mechanisms for healing, for growth, that can correct themselves over time. So yes, we are going to get into a little bit of physiology, and then we're going to talk about therapeutic stress. And that's right, I just said it. Therapeutic stress, it can be good for us. So how about this? Let's start with basic terminology. Uh, you could tell we're on a new topic, by the way, because we're going back into technical speak. Uh, whenever we introduce a new concept, we uh, have a tendency to break into the physio, the chemistry. In uh, remember if Dr. Hirschberger's case, the actual physics and terminology of things. It's so we could lay a good foundation for the further um, under for the further discussions. For example, stress for a lot of folks is a very squishy. It's a very fuzzy idea. So right, I figured, what, what does that represent? Right, right. So. Stress in the context of biology was actually a metaphor um, proposed by a, I believe he was a physician. I can't, I can't remember if he's a physician or a scientist exclusively. It was a Hans Sely. He uh, used the metaphor 
of mechanical stress to describe the unseen, non-specific, non, I say it's hard to not use the word stress because that's the language you grew up with now, phenomenon that negatively impact the body. Like, why does fear, pneumonia, depression, and a gunshot wound all seem to have the same sympathetic response? We didn't have a word for that uh, for a while. They were all described as discrete phenomenon until eventually this uh, clinician described it as stress. Now, stress was a borrowed term for mechanics. Uh, Stress in the traditional context was defined as the force applied over a unit area. For example, if I put 10 pounds of force over, um, I don't know, whatever uh, field, that is the stress. And then the strain is the amount of deformation in that thing. For example, think about if I put a lot of force, a lot of pressure into a, I don't know, into a a thing of Play-Doh, because we have kids and that's how I think nowadays. <laughs> that, in, 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 in units of Play-Doh. Yes, yes, yes. Play-Doh units, that's P-U, Play-Doh units. Right. You know how like when you put a little bit of force on some Play-Doh, that thing just like warps like putty because that's what it means to be putty? It's not resistant to stress at all. Exactly. It is very easy to strain that material versus let's try putting that same amount of force into Wolverine's claws. Adamantium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah, you, you, Plato to adamantium, yeah, or Beskar. We could do Beskar. There you go. But you can put a, you could put all the force in the world that stuff, or Captain America's shield. Let's go. Let's go with uh, that. Vibranium. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you have the idea that for the amount of stress you apply to the material, nothing happens. That no, is a for sure. Right. Right. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about stress, especially for this episode, because we're talking about the mechanical load applied to the architecture that is the human system. One of those stresses persistently is gravity, right? Gravity is always pulling us down. And that's not a metaphor this time. I mean that literally gravity is always pulling us down, um, as well as the various things we do uh, to move and maneuver, push and pull, and just live. Uh, These forces add up and confer load onto the various structures of our body. And thank God, our body is able to pay attention and calibrate according to that. Now, fortunately, we have structures within our body that respond to that stress. Or uh, I like how you said pressure, because from a physics standpoint, the definition of pressure is force applied over a certain area. There are lots of forces applied over lots of surface areas within our body. That's That goes back to that whole tensegrity idea. Muscles floating in and tissues. Our muscles are wrapped in saran wrap. Uh, we call this fascia. Um, And what's amazing about this saran wrap surrounding our bones is our bones are stimulated to grow and thicken in response to pressure applied across those surface areas. We call that Wolf's Law, right? Where we have remodeling as a result of force applied to the system. We need to have consistent force to stimulate those bones to deposit calcium, to pull calcium out of our bloodstream, out of our tissues, and load it into the bones so the bones remain strong. One of the main issues with growing older is we have the reverse of Wolf's Law, essentially, where there is less strain on the bones. The the bones sense that there is less stress applied to them, so calcium can be removed the body's like, look, there's no stress there. I don't need to store any calcium there. We're taking it out. What do you get? You get osteoporosis, and then you get brittle bones as a result. It's quite the uh, quite the activity. All right. We happen to be a use it or lose it type of organism, which technically is kind of not cool. But at the same time, think about that in the inverse. If you use it, you will adapt to it. And that's agnostic to the direction, right? If you live and operate in a function that does not need highly expensive, organically demanding structure, or sorry, chemically demanding structures, why are you going to waste the materials on that? You could be doing something better with that because something we don't fully appreciate, um, it's easy to conceive a bone as just like rocks in the inside of our body, but it's a very metabolically active thing. Uh, what a lot of folks see when they think of bone is just the mineral matrix that you can see with your eyes uh, because of what you and I do for a living. When we think of bone, we're thinking of not just the bone itself, but the periosteum that's wrapped around it, the 
uh, osteoclasts, that's the things that break down, and the osteoclasts, that's the thing that build up, that live inside that matrix. I want you guys to think about, um, imagine a sponge made of rock, and that's really closer to what bone is to us, as opposed to just like this mineral deposition-y thing that it gets left over after you eat some chicken. Yeah, when, when you look at the x-ray, you're seeing the hard candy out in a shell. But what's really of the interest to us is the little layer that surrounds that hard candy shell and all of that soft stuff in the middle, the candy, the chocolate inside, where our uh, the precursors for our blood cells are located, precursors for immune cells are located. All sorts of amazing stuff is going on on the inside that we just don't see and we don't yeah. think about. Yeah, I forgot who it was, but it was one of the one of the attendings who trained you and I. So uh, I guess shout out to the one that I forgot. I apologize, all of you. Um, there was this idea of a continuum. So you take connective tissue, right? Just fascia, which is that really fine woven, uh, vaguely amorphous substance. You give it a little bit more structure and you end up with like, uh, like a fascial sheath and you end up with myofascia. And then you take a lot of that and eventually end up with such regularity and structure, you end up with something that's approximating actual muscle and tendon. And then you make that even stiffer. You make that more fibrous, more woven, and you end up with more something more like a ligament. It's still made of more or less the same stuff, but because of the physical arrangement of it, it's taking on different properties. And then you start taking that ligamentous structure and you start layering and depositing, like weaving actual um, minerals into that woven piece. And now it starts to harden. That's called calcification, if that wasn't obvious. And now you end up with this continuum where bone is just really, really hard connective tissue. It's a it's a really a beautiful system. And, you know, we, we see bone spurs all the time, and people don't realize that bone spurs quite often are the result of just calcium depositing where it's going to deposit because of inflammatory changes in the tendons. And um, I, the whole system is beautiful. Uh, and it, when we describe it as woven, it, it really is. If you look at the microscopic uh, structure of fascia and the protein fibers that make it up, it's, it's beautiful. There are some amazing uh, videos on uh, YouTube that a surgeon took using a microscope during surgery that uh, shows the movement of these fibrils and uh, uh, strands of protein. It, uh, I wish I could remember the name of it. That is uh, the power of Google right now or whatever browser you guys are familiar with. Dr. Go, be my guest. Yeah, uh, Dr. Jean-Claude uh, Gumberto yes. is who you're referring to. I actually bought his book last year. Uh, it was a picture book with a bunch of DVDs to map out the um, exact thing that you're describing. I haven't had a chance to read it as fully as I would like to because guess what? I bought that on March 10th. And then March 11th, things went down. <laughs> down really fast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The book has well, been in my bookshelf since literally the beginning of COVID. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks, Rona. Yeah. You'll, yeah. You'll get there. You'll get there. Uh, and what, what lives in this fascia? The fascia itself is amazing, but there is living in the fascia cells that are mechanically uh, reactive, the fibroblasts, they're the ones that they're kind of like spiders, really. You know, spiders will lay uh, spin webs for different purposes, sometimes for a home, sometimes for catching prey. And uh, they, they respond to some vibrations on those webs. Fibroblasts are the same in reality. They spin webs of fascia in response to vibratory changes and pressure changes that are sensed throughout that matrix, that fabric. And I guess it's, it's a bit inaccurate to call it uh, fascia a saran wrap. I, I, I do that for the visualization, but in reality, it's, it's more like a 300 thread count Egyptian. <laughs> really, really <laughs> fine cotton, basically. Really fine cotton. Uh, more than a saran wrap because of the fibers. And this is important to understand because when we exercise, we activate the fascia. When we move, we activate those fibroblasts. When we 
ambulate, when we lift weights, we put strain throughout that system and the system responds. It doesn't just sit there going, oh, well, here's something else. It, it takes those loads and says, okay, what am I going to do with this? Well, I need more volume in my muscles. I need more calcium in my bones. I need to move uh, uh, liquid and, and water and fluids from one space to another to get uh, nutrients and vitamins and all of the, the different chemicals that are needed for functioning. For us to be metabolically healthy, we need to be physiologically active. Right. And uh, I don't know, as, as you were bringing that up, I had this, I had this very very sophisticated memory of like like a bunch of like Friedrich Nietzsche quotes and then this got real weeb real fast and I just went no 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 screw that Dragon Ball Z <laughs> oh yeah yeah right. bring in. yeah Dragon Ball Z for sure bring like, it in like two hours of just shouting and flexing hard until eventually you just like shoot a ball of light from your fist like <laughs> oh man you can't even understand them when they're doing it but you know oh, it, man, that, that, that was that was the shit right there <laughs> but the the idea was um the characters no most of the, the the main characters in that show were these uh things called saiyans they're basically not metaphorically monkey people from a different planet named vegetable translation issues there just go with it um <laughs> it was called planet vegeta just whatever uh, japanese thing which doesn't go that well but yeah. um what ended up happening is the defining feature of that species of these like ape man alien things was that anything they fought if it if it didn't kill them they would adapt to be able to beat that thing the next time literally if you did not kill them on the first shot they would come at you with a vengeance stronger adapted specifically to murder your face and that was pretty dope when you base an entire show around that because that just meant you kept sending them bigger and more ridiculous and more terrifying like bad guys and you know everybody gets their ass kicked Everybody dies or gets like near the brink of death or something like that happens. You wish on a Dragon Ball, somebody comes back to life. It's basically supernatural, the anime. And right. then what ends up happening um, at some point at the darkest moment, the the heroes, the main characters, for various reasons, begin to adapt. And they muster up the strength, non-metaphorically, to take on the baddie, non-metaphorically, and then like Kaoken that thing into oblivion. Sorry, spirit bomb the thing into oblivion. Kaoken didn't really happen since like the first season of Dragon Ball Z, but look, it's it's been a while for me, okay? Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think anyone will hold against you. You know, I hang out with a lot of folks who probably would, so I apologize to those folks out there. Well, if they do, then we are more than happy to have them as fans of this show. There you go. But um I mean that that's the idea though. It's um I don't know how lucky I was to be obsessed with that show as a kid like anybody else who had Toonami growing up. Um, because what ended up happening was that at a very early age set this precedent in my head of like, got it, if I train, I get better. And not in like a sophisticated health sense. It was like, look, 11-year-old brain with testosterone just starting to boot up. If I train, I get to be that. Noted. Where the weight's right. at. Yeah, give me some weights. And, right. and, I need to go yeah. fight stuff, hit things, and lift stuff. Give me some protein. <laughs> At least I need to be prepared for any anything that can happen. And the place to start is to be to have a strong foundation. Exactly. Strong, strong structure of bones is surrounded and wrapped in muscles and tendons. And you know, we we think about muscles when we let weightlifting, but we we don't think enough about the tendons attached to those muscles and we don't think enough about the bones uh, attached to those tendons and in reality much of that weightlifting is translated to tendon health and bone health for both short-term gains and long-term um, survivability and when i say survivability yes it could be if you're surrounded by monsters in your neighborhood and you have to fight your way out. But it can also be when you're surrounded by metabolic um, uh, defects or metabolic attacks as you get older and you have reactive oxygen species and, uh, and uh, radiation from sun and all of these kinds of things, you're, you need to have a system that's well attuned 
to address new pressures on the system. And you can only do that if you keep the system active. Just letting you know, I have the image of you hammer fisting a Twinkie right now. <laughs> Let's do it. Be gone, we, we... <laughs> Get out of here. There you go. But but no. that's the idea. There's um there was this really prolific strength coach. Uh, it was a uh, Mark Rippletoe. Um, and for anybody who takes a strength game seriously, right? That's he's the guy. Name for a strength coach. Yeah, like like everybody knows, I'm basically like a junkie for strong first. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. all things being all things being said, uh, Mark Rippletoe is where it's at because he's like the foundation that the foundation was founded on. You know what I mean? Um, but he had this really really elegant quote, and. It got him into some heat, but at the same time, there's something undeniably true about it, but he just had to say it in the meanest way that he could because it's him. And he goes, uh, was like, strong people are happier and harder to kill overall compared to weak people. <laughs> and I'm like... And that is so true in so many levels. Yeah, I'm like, you know, I, I, I empirically cannot deny anything you said. Hell, I'm on board. Where the barbell's at. Yeah, right. Well, and it, it, the the shallow interpretation is it's hard to kill them in a fight because they're strong. But in reality, their body is also able to handle all of the environmental pressures uh, that it will encounter through the ages if it has a well-functioning system. It's, you know, we, we go back to the, the uh, metaphor of a vehicle that's well-maintained. Um, if you're changing the oil on a regular basis and you're checking and topping off the fluids and rotating the tires and doing all of the things that we're recommended to do, then when the car faces the stress of the road, it's better able to handle that. So the next time you have to hit the gas to go around a semi that's driving slower on the freeway, there's enough oil in that car to handle the heat that the engine's going to experience as you increase revolutions. We got to do the same thing with our body. If we don't have our body ready for that gas pedal incident, you know, one of the um, interesting aspects of living in a northern state, and I've lived in South Dakota, and I've lived in northern Utah, and I've lived in uh, Pennsylvania, where we get a lot of snow, there seems to be a correlation with the first heavy snowfall of the year and heart attack rates. Because, God, get out with snow shovels. Oh, man, yeah. Things that they haven't been doing all year long and snow in some areas. Now, I will tell you, there's a difference between Philadelphia snow and Utah snow. The Philadelphia snow is like shoveling mud. Utah snow is like shoveling uh, ashes from a fireplace in many, many cases. Sometimes it's extremely light. Now, I but, can't speak to Utah for the record because I've, I've never been nor have I lived there except for literally two, 10 minutes uh, transferring planes. But when it snows in Pennsylvania or New Jersey or New York, part of what happens is the snow captures all of the smog and the dirt and the soot and the uh, the human vitriol. We'll just call it that. Screw it. We're we're a hate we're a hateful people up there. <laughs> Crystallizes that into some blackness and Crystal. drips it down. Because <laughs> you're not shoveling snow, man. You're shoveling a year's worth of rage, filtered, filtered. Yeah. That is amazing. I love it. Oh, man. That snow looks good for all of 10 seconds before it looks like just straight tar. Well, and then you spend two hours shoveling it and you drive away and then someone comes and takes your spot. Exactly. And that's what adds to the hate. Adds to the rage. Adds to the rage. Oh, man. And because someone hasn't been doing weightlifting all year long, they go out and they think, oh, it's just a little bit of snow. I'm going to shovel it off. And then they get heart attacks and uh, and back pain, back strains, and that kind of stuff. But the heart attack is really the big one. So it's a perfect example of someone who's decompensated. They haven't been putting stress on their musculoskeletal system. And voila, their cardiovascular system can't handle the pressure any longer of a simple uh, routine exercise like shoveling snow. And it gives out. Right, because it, it turns out that the heart... Uh, strictly speaking, it tends to need exertion in order to maintain its quality. If people forget, the heart is a muscle too. And in the same way that your biceps can get weak because you don't curl enough, by the way, curls are BS, just whatever. Um, 
the heart, if not given sufficient load, will adapt to that insufficient load and go, look, heart is expensive. It beats from cradle to grave. If I don't need to go full, you know, full crazy all the time and I can just live in this low gear, maybe I don't need those extra, you know, if I never have to go into high gear, do I really need those high gears? I could use that energy, use those parts, use that physical space for literally anything else. Mm -hmm. So that heart has now become weak. And to prevent that, you need, turns out, moderate intensity activity. And it's weird because we're talking about some kind of metal sounding stuff. You know what I mean? Rage, snow, vitriol, and like lifting and stuff like that. Are we going Game of Thrones now all of a sudden? I'm just saying, man, Thor Bjornsson is a beautiful beast. But <laughs> at the same time, I just said moderate activity, moderate intensity. And that's like, wait, moderate doesn't sound that hard. Like, I do moderate, I guess. Moderate means mild. It's that Grecian, like that's a Socratic moderate, right? Not so hard that it's, uh, nah. Moderate in uh, professional and clinical terms means something very specific. When we're talking about uh, VO2, when we're talking about endurance exercise, cardiovascular exercise, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. we talk about the capacity for the heart to extract oxygen, sorry, for the lungs to extract oxygen from the air and, and for the heart to pump that reoxygenated blood throughout the body. The harder you work, the more blood you need to deliver, the more oxygen you need to pull from the environment. Uh, there's this idea that there's a maximum volume of oxygen that you can maneuver. That's your VO2 max, volume of oxygen to max. Um, and we determine moderate or light or heavy intensity as a function of the percent of your maximum. Now, because most folks don't have access to a fancy machine to tell you what your parameters are, uh, clinically, coaching, uh, like performance-wise, uh, we say something like, I need you to train hard enough, okay? I need you to train hard enough for 30 minutes such that if you tried to speak while doing this drill, you would not sustain. So like, okay, if I go for a run, right? I pick a pace where I can still like talk to you. I can If I, if I can record this podcast while going for a run, I ain't running right now. No, no. If you can talk and be understood, you're not working hard enough to be moderate. Exactly. There's that threshold where like I can still run. It's not quite comfortable, but I'm not gassing. I can do it for maybe 30 minutes to an hour if I really had to, but I need to focus on my breath. That's roughly speaking where moderate intensity lives versus high intensity where it's kind of like, you know, give me the Red Bull. Let's go. Boom, boom. You know what I mean? And for a majority of people, the uh, high intensity is really not beneficial. The moderate intensity is really where it's at. Right. Uh, what's interesting about that is speed walking can be every bit as moderate intensity as a jog. And in many, in many cases, better. It's going to kick the heart rate up even better because of the mechanical inefficiencies caused by walking at too high of a speed. So, um, quite often, if if I have someone that tells me they don't like to run, I said, well, that's okay. You don't have to run. You can speed walk and get more benefit, increase your VO2 max without without the uh, uh, strain of running. Have you ever seen a speed walking competition? <laughs> yes. And I've seen the speed walking suits too, the funny ones from the 1980s. Lovely. I can only knock them so far because those athletes are respectable. Like, true story. You can have the dinkiest sport in the world. If you're performing at a high level, you have my respect by default. But <laughs> in the pantheon of athletics, damn. <laughs> well, you know how speed walking was actually studied, the VO2 max and the metabolic effects? It was studied in horses. Really? And the guys who studied it trained the horses to walk on a treadmill. If you can imagine a horse walking on a treadmill. And uh, you see what, what happens is we have this automatic transmission at which point when you walk at a fast enough speed, your body automatically wants to start to jog. That's why I call it an automatic transmission. You just automatically want to jog. Speed walking only happens when you're walking faster than that transition point. Right. And uh, you have to force yourself to do it. That's why it's difficult to breathe. It's difficult to do anything but focus on your speed. Well, these researchers trained horses to walk at a speed faster than what they normally would trot at. And they, they were able to study metabolic activity in these speed walking horses. <laughs> it's pretty wild. I need to I need to watch that Netflix documentary like now. <laughs> oh my uh, God. 
what? <laughs> I don't know if there's a Netflix documentary. I, I remember um, studying. It's me saying that there should be. Somebody there, out there, make it happen. There, <laughs> if anyone who's listening is a documentary uh, filmmaker, please make it happen. <laughs> I, I, I would say I'd pay for it, but it's Netflix. So I will watch it and give you a thumbs up or something. I don't know. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So and, and interesting stuff. And, and I, I bring that up because of the stress of speed walking. You get that moderate effect without having to go for a jog. Honestly, it's a great option. When I was active duty, if you had a, an injury that prevented you from running, you were assigned to do the walk test and you had to do a two kilometer walk in, um, oh, I think it was 15 minutes, something like that. We had more failures of the walk test than we had the run test. Dude, w- walking is hard. Walking fast is difficult. It requires a lot of focus. And, and an insane amount of focus because you automatically want to slow down back down to your saunter. And it, it's, it, it doesn't work if you do. So anywho, there's, there's your speed walking uh, shout out. You know, I didn't know we would go this way with this episode, but I'm really glad we did. So uh, all this to say um, for the hard, it turns out you need moderate intensity uh, activity. And that's not a, uh, like uh, you need it to be, an athlete, you need that just to be. Absent that level of exertion, the heart steadily decompensates. By the time you hit your 40s, you end up be- being so deconditioned that you are now vulnerable to the metabolic diseases. Because you are so deconditioned, now it's that much easier to make you uh, diabetic or hypertensive or uh, dyslipidemic. And for the record, I doubt most patients actually care about their blood pressure or their blood sugar um, at the level of that actual parameter. What people actually care about is they'll be in more pain. They'll look not as good as they could be. Playing with their kids are going to hurt more. By the way, your chance of having a heart attack or a stroke goes up meaningfully. I believe uh, once you get the diagnosis of metabolic syndrome, your relative risk of heart disease goes up by a factor of about 40 to 60%. So 1.4 to 1.6. And that doesn't mean much as a statistic, but just keep in mind at baseline, um, I say this, Diabetes and hypertension and obesity all confer their own chance of heart disease. You're adding to that. You're multiplying to all those together. It adds up is what I'm saying. You don't want to die early. You, don't, you want to be able to play with your kids. Well, and I don't think people realize that when you have the diagnosis of diabetes, that is considered an equivalent to having a myocardial infarction and a heart attack when we're calculating cardiovascular risk scores uh, to determine what your risk really is. So that diagnosis of diabetes, it's you might as well have had a heart attack. That's how much your risk increases for having a future heart attack. So trying to avoid that, it seems like, you know, exercising, weightlifting, speed walking, jogging, whatever you fits your fancy. It seems like it's worth the investment of your time and effort to put that additional positive therapeutic stress on your body. Right. And even then, if it's, Let's say it's not even for health, right? Um, that's one of the things I like to harp on with, uh, like my actual patients and especially my students when we're when we're at work. I know most folks don't care about their health, and honestly, that's kind of okay. If they cared that a lot about their health, they'd probably be healthcare providers or something. Like that's that's our bias. That's that's our world to be interested in. Yeah, so even well. if they don't, right? Even if they don't care about their health, they could care about their actual like functional performance and what's functional performance mean here. It's like a, like, you know, in our, in our office uh, for those who are tuning in for maybe the first time, Dr. Uh, James and I actually are clinicians. We see patients. We actually have a job. Um, if that wasn't obvious, um, <laughs> you never know, man. Like we could just yeah. be two random voices on you, uh, not YouTube, sorry, on whatever streaming service you're catching this on. Yeah. Um, but in my in our clinic, I keep a kettlebell around, uh, a twenty five pound bell, and it's there for a very specific purpose. That's like a, it's like a graduation bell almost in my in my in my uh, for my patients. It's like if you can move this bell effectively, then you are officially discharged from my practice because you don't need me anymore. It's one of those types of things. Mm-hmm. And um, the reason I use a twenty five pound bell is the average weight for a two year old is roughly that. You know what I mean? Because you figure, look, I, 
you might not care about heart disease, live fast, die young, all that good stuff. Not my choice. Go do you. But if you're going to be a functioning adult with any sort of pride, I figure you at least want to be able to move a kid out of trouble. And I figure if you can effectively maneuver a 25-pound kettlebell, right, that means that you are good enough at movement and sustaining loads to be able to maneuver a child, whether it's yours or somebody else's. I figure that's a reasonable, practical, not health-related goal. Can you get your kid out of a burning building if push came to shove? That's the real saber-toothed tiger in my head. And that's uh, that's a worthy goal to have, to be able to affect the lives of others uh, through your own health, uh, whatever that looks like. And what's interesting about all of this, so we're, we're talking about exercise. Exercise activates fibroblasts through that that fascia fabric that we talk about. And those fibroblasts go about doing their business, uh, reorganizing structures and helping strengthen and shore up the system. When people come into our office, they don't realize we are doing the same thing when we do this osteopathic thing that we do. Um, it looks like voodoo. <laughs> and I've had colleagues send patients to me to do my voodoo magic. But in reality, it's a very um, uh, um, tangible thing for those of us who get our hands on patients. Right. Because, you know, we touch patients and that's important. Um, the things that we're talking about here are extremely non-metaphorical. For example, if a muscle is tight, like a muscle can look like whatever on an MRI or any sort of image, but like it, it can look perfect, but you put your hand on it and it's hard as a rock, something's off. And it's not like something's off like, oh, this muscle is sick. It's this thing is not performing the way it ought to, right? We, we talked way back to episode one, right? Is this a uh, medicine problem or is this an engineering problem? And the part could look really, really good, but it's not calibrated right, right? Yeah, yeah. And and that is one of the drawbacks of uh, imaging is the imaging can't tell us if something is dysfunctional. It can tell us if there's some inflammation going on, but it's not going to tell us if a muscle is tight. But you're right. The, the muscles give us information and give us... Uh, feedback and not just muscles the tendons and the ligaments and the fascia itself once you have enough experience and with touching people the body talks to us and i know that sounds kind of woo woo but it really does it's it's wild when i have patients and, and i have students with me and we we get working on a patient and then all of a sudden you feel this palpable change and it's instantaneous it's it's one minute there's nothing going on the next minute whoa it's hard to describe and you get you see the pa you, you see the patients they feel better but you see the looks on the students eye on their faces looks in their eyes and they're like what just happened and it's like you just happened that body just happened it, it's wonderful stuff yeah, I would say that's when you say magic and you walk out, do a disservice <laughs> to the practice. Yeah, right. Uh, mic drop <laughs> and saunter out of the room. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's it's a big deal because um, it's it's the thing that escapes the conversation a lot is that the neuromuscular, the musculoskeletal system, this this whole like movement complex, it's really well understood as a cybernetic structure and. That's a really fun word to throw around, but I mean that uh, formally speaking, it's a communication-based structure that's regulating upon itself. What does that mean? That means that your parts are calibrating themselves in relation to the other parts and sending data and receiving data to each other formally on what everybody else is up to. It's basically like Facebook for your cells, which makes this sound terrible, but hey, guess what? God bless America. Um <laughs> what uh, happens when we do the OMT? I'm just going to move right past that and just—it's—it's it's, it's a Skynet. <laughs> there you go, um, and DuckDuckGo. Uh, oh yes, please. Yeah, yeah. You could tell the subtext of this episode sometimes, but <laughs> when you when we put our hands on our patients to do the manipulation thing, and look, there's different ways and styles and techniques for osteopathic work, but one of the things that's common among a lot of us is it's not just a using our hands as meaty appendages to administer force, uh, we are palpating, right? Um, 
software, right? We're plugging into the system essentially. Yeah. Using our own sensory um, devices to inform ourselves of what's going on within our patient's body, essentially. Right. right. Non metaphorically, it's it's having a nonverbal conversation with our patient. So, like, uh, the best example I can think of, uh, there's a a patient I was taking care of once upon a time. I've referred to her actually earlier in this. We gave up on seasons, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We mentioned her several episodes ago. And um, she came in for neck pain uh, neck pain, and headaches. And that was really all she had in her uh, intake. Nothing else was really uh, relevant to her as far as how she presented herself. But I, I got some of her story, learned about her various surgeries and a couple car accidents and a lot of interesting stuff in between, but when I got my hands on her neck, um, it took all of maybe two seconds to go, this is not a neck problem, this is a breathing problem. And the way that data was communicated to me wasn't by interview, it was through physical exam. In a, in a formal sense, it was because as I put my thumb and middle finger against her um, C2 processes, right, uh, basically holding the AA, and kind of feeling at the cervical spine, it was very clear how much of her breath she was drawing from her neck musculature. She was breathing almost exclusively out of her neck. Which is um, very stressful. Hell, hell yeah. You could hear her. It sounded like a jet fuel intake thing, just <sighs> every breath. And I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you, lady? Like an F-16. Dude. But what ended up happening was after her various abdominal surgeries, honestly, she had no real good use of her diaphragm because of post-op um, and because of her multiple car accidents, as um, obvious as this should be, but it kind of escaped us in conversation, her face was kind of smashed in. She had a deviated septum. Um, and that affects the airway and affects the mechanics of getting air through the airway and uh, is going to change the mechanism that she was using to breathe. Right. So... I told her, like, look, I know you're here for neck pain and headache, but hear me out. I need to go in your face. Um, so I grab my gloves. She looks at me like, what the hell are you talking about? I explain what I'm what I'm feeling. And she goes, oh, that actually kind of makes sense. Let's give it a shot. So I, I set up for some, like, craniofacial work. And um, I start uh, moving her uh, her maxilla, her vomer, um, like, like, like basic facial work, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I find a position of ease for her. Uh, facial bones, specifically like around her nasion, vomer, that whole region where the load was taken off her breath such that she could breathe with her nose. And it was really cool because after about five seconds in that position, um, she stopped sounding like she was about to take off the tarmac. <laughs> and two, she actually took a really deep breath quietly and just kind of like sighed. Her shoulders drop. Yeah, dude, it was it was magnificent. We call that a therapeutic sigh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you know so, things actually worked, the patient starts to sigh. Right. So we went with it, and I, I finished out working from her nose down to her throat, uh, took care of some stuff related to her diaphragm. And honestly, a lot of her diaphragm function is shot forever because post-op scars. But at the very least, the face stuff we could handle. Yeah. Um, I kid you not, she, she was so confused at how good she got that she started sending her friends over our way. And I'm like, look, man, that was <laughs> slow your roll. Yeah, I'll, I'll take whatever I can get, but yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, it was good publicity. There's a reason I like to talk about our case on a show where we like to talk about our type of work, but that was, none of that was verbal, right? She came in for neck pain. Um, I knew about her surgical history from the intake and I asked her a little bit about it as we did the treatment. But until I put my fingers on her neck, to feel how aberrant her breathing pattern was, there was no obvious indication that all of her head and neck pain was really just uh, fatigued breath, uh, diaphragm, respiratory, ENT pathology. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I sent her to ENT afterwards. They helped her with her septum, this and the other thing. We got this dialed in. To date, like right now, she's honestly doing really damn good. But the conversation began with OMT. And I love how you put it. It was the conversation. The conversation was between her face and your fingers and her neck and your fingers. Right. And following what the fascia was talking about. Uh, we do this all the time with with our techniques. Uh, students will, will ask what kind of technique I'm using. And, uh, and part of my response is, in reality, most osteopathic techniques fall under a spectrum of the way we approach the fascia. 
I wanted to get into a little bit of how we approach the fascia in a, a more what we call a direct approach. And now I'm really going into uh, uh, jargon here. When we say direct approach, that means we find where there's a restriction. We try to play around at that area um, because it fits within this whole idea of moving fascia activates fascia and stimulates it to fix it itself. So one of my favorite techniques is muscle energy. Um, and this is fun because muscle energy is also used in the weightlifting realm, right? Very much so. Although there, there is a bit of a branding war and like intellectual debate regarding the term. There's a parallel term called proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation, also known as PNF. Mm. And, um, Around last year, I actually had to do a lecture for a residency where I was going through the history of our various osteopathic techniques, and um, I data mined as hard as I could, man, and I could not find heads or tails of which one came first because the two seemed, honestly, to develop independently off of a common literature base. Like, some guy does the research on the basic neurophysiological phenomenon, right? Uh, muscle spindle adaptation, mm -hmm. uh, reflex inhibition, all that good stuff, and then multiple parties took that literature and went, wait, if that's how the system works, I can do this thing to intervene with the system. And it just happens to be the two schools that are predominant now are the osteopathic version, that's muscle energy, and the PNF school that is uh, out of the PM&R field, actually, like strict PM&R. It was a physiatrist who invented the technique. Um, but I, it's I all the same damn thing. Muscle, muscle energy sounds cooler than PNF, honestly. It does, it does, but, but hey, look. Maybe a little bit biased towards the osteopathic kind of thing. I'm just saying, man, we lost the brand wars for this one. Like, uh, It's got like hydrochlorothiazide and chlorothalidone. Like all the research was chlorothalidone. By the way, buy some HCTZ. And you're like, what the hell is HCTZ? <laughs> we are HCTZ in this conversation, man. HCTZ is hydrochlorothiazide. That's a thiazide diuretic. You don't need to know that for the show. Well, but um, the reason it. I bring it up is, yeah, yeah. And in the strength, uh, in the exercise community, uh, the PNF, also known as muscle energy or vice versa techniques, are used a lot, especially for those who who operate at a high level because of how much it affects in a positive way their training. Uh, we use it as a tool to be, for active warm-up in order to um, just maneuver better during the training event itself or during a competition if that's the case. And a lot of the time it's used as a recovery tool because, hey, guess what? It has a therapeutic effect. That's why we use it as osteopaths. We weren't the only ones to figure this out. A lot of the time after a really hard deadlift, um, it's really nice to actually have your hamstrings and your quads worked with this type of technique so that you can chop off a day or two of your recovery, get back on the mat a little bit faster because, you know, training load matters. Right. It's actually a really good time to talk about what the technique actually entails. Uh, you want to take point on that one, man? Yeah, yeah. So uh, essentially what we're doing is we're finding where a, a muscle is uh, tight. Uh, again, back to the jargon of the the osteopathic world is where there's a what we call a barrier. You take the muscle to that barrier that it doesn't want to cross, and you have the push, person contract that muscle that you took to the barrier. Uh, essentially, when you contract, and then you, you have them contract for a, a brief period of time, and then have them stop contracting, stop pushing. Um, and then uh, once you've paused on that, that after that contraction is stopped, then you stretch the muscle. And uh, it's really quite cool to feel how the muscle actually lengthens uh, during that relaxation period. Um, you usually will do this th uh, three, five, seven times, depending on what muscle and how uh, problematic the muscle is. Uh, but you get great range of motion improvements over long, large surface areas, over large regions, just using this technique. But not only do you improve range of motion, you also improve pain uh, quite often till pain will honestly disappear in many patients. Right. And it's, a, it's an interesting technique. It's, it's one of the first, I think it might actually be the first osteopathic technique that developed independent of uh, A.T. Still's legacy, like uh, HVLA, the bone setting behaviors, the myofascial behaviors, uh, Still's technique, no duh, um, and BLT. A lot of that really came off 
advancements and evolutions of the things that uh, Dr. Still was already doing in his own practice and taught to his students directly, the muscle energy uh, technique set was actually developed outside of that canon and then incorporated into the greater body of osteopathy after uh, the usual uh, interprofessional politicking. <laughs> I'm saying that very kindly. It was a really interesting feud. Yeah, well, well there have been plenty of politicking throughout the years, but that's that's another discussion for another day. Um, but it's fascinating how it developed, and it's really taken hold uh, and used on a regular basis. I know I use it all the time, especially when I have muscles that are extremely tight and they just won't move otherwise. Um, I have some patients with some dis disorders that honestly require me to use it to just get them get their bodies to move at all before right. I can do anything else. Yeah, it's um, there was a. It's been a long time since we quoted A.T. Stillman. It's it's been a minute. Yeah. Let's do it. Um, I forgot the quote already. <laughs> it's been it's been like forty <laughs> minutes, man. But <laughs> but uh, paraphrasing very very lightly, it was something to the effect of to uh to adjust the bones and like to, to adjust the bones and joints before adjusting the muscles and ligaments is akin to putting the cart before the horse it was it was something roughly approximating that well, Fred Mitchell who said that right it was actually still proper still proper oh okay yeah this predated the technique um the thing is for uh, dr still his preferred maneuver to calibrate to uh, to to work with the soft tissue, the muscles, the tendons, etc., was uh, what eventually became uh, BLT, uh, balanced ligamentous tension, not the right. sandwich. Um, basically, it's a technique of unloading and compression. While remember we talked about the body being cybernetic, having conversations. Essentially, if you mm -hmm. offload a joint correctly, um, the structures that support the joint begin to kind of calibrate to that new setting. Uh, I'm being very, very touch and go with that technique because I don't want to dive too too deep into it just yet. But um, muscle energy just didn't exist as a concept at the time. He was really a HVLA, uh, myofascial release, uh, indirect, direct, articulatory kind of guy, which is not a bad thing. It's just... It, it works. Right. He used those tools to accomplish this goal. Um, what happened was with muscle energy... That came out of the the new understanding of how muscles and nerves interacted together that developed in the early 20th century. That data just wasn't available when uh, Still was doing his practice. Uh, like I said, um, it developed into muscle energy and PNF. Um, basically, we found out that if you activate a muscle, there's reflex uh, hyper-relaxation, right? So let's imagine, just making up numbers here, you have a muscle that's set at a tension of 50, and you contract really hard and it gets like to 100 as far as its tension. When you relax, it doesn't go back down to 50. It'll go down to like 30 for a couple moments. And then it'll get back to 50. And right. it turns out the longer you do that contraction and the harder you contract, the larger and longer that dip. So for example, if you do the deadlift, for those who have done a deadlift before, Y'all know what it feels like to finish a really rough deadlifting workout. You're basically jelly for the next like two days. Yeah, it's it's no fun. It's you science. Feel, you feel great when you're done, but it's not fun doing it. Exactly. <laughs> that feeling great. Right, right. The minute your nose stops bleeding and the adrenaline goes away, you're like, why the hell did I do that? Yeah, why are my ears ringing? <laughs> why am I dizzy? But um, the, the, the science, the actual physiology of what happens during that phenomenon is what we're talking about. At a much more metered and therapeutic dosing, that's what this technique is. What we do classically, what we did classically was actually full force isometric contraction. Uh, the guy who developed the technique, uh, Fred Mitchell Sr., um, he would position the patient into whatever would activate that tight muscle and hit that barrier. And then he would uh, stack himself in such a way that the patient can go for a full force contraction with the offending limb for uh, a given time until it basically just gave out out of fatigue and then he'd move it into place. It was basically one long rep versus this uh, three to five set. Now, over time, we found out some restrictions. That's a weird word to use now. Some limitations to the technique. Um, Fred Mitchell Sr. was a phenomenally strong human. 
and that can uh, that can be both um, beneficial and it can also be a major drawback. Exactly. So in order to generalize the technique to the less robustly physical, um, we had to take down the power. So instead of going full force, go 50, 50, maybe 30. Nowadays, we generally recommend about 20% of maximal contraction. And then because the uh, the force is lessened, right? The amount of tension is lessened. We need to do it for a longer time. So instead of one long rep at infinity until you break, now it's like, all right, give me uh, 20% contraction, push against my force, hold that for about five to 10 seconds, breathe out and relax. All right, we're going to do that five more times. Let's reassess this, maybe do two more sets of that, and then we'll call it a day, which again, takes longer, but it's a lot more forgiving to the physiology. Uh, you and I both take care of some very athletic uh, humans. Yeah, I, I once did this technique on a Marine. And yeah. Well, we got down and he says, Doc, I got to admit, I was really tempted to throw you over my shoulder. Right. <laughs> but that was more because of his hand-to-hand -hand combat experience. You know, but our mentor, Dr. Dombrowski, actually asked me uh, in the very beginning of our residency together to teach a course on very basic jujitsu or grappling <laughs> for, for the sake of improving our residents muscle energy technique because for uh dombrowski said it really well he's like anybody who does osteopathy at a meaningful level needs to know how to fight there was something to that it's when you do a muscle energy technique you are non-metaphorically wrestling with your patient's um, aggression in such a way to produce a therapeutic effect now again you can chamber you can uh, dial that aggression down into something that's manageable but at the end of the day you're telling the patient to push and you're telling them that you're going to resist, which means you yourself as the practitioner have to be capable of resisting as well. And it, it, it is valuable for us to be exercising. That's part of the reason why I exercise as well, because the physical nature of my job, it's, it's pretty wild. Some patients will, will pull you aside and say, Hey doc, you're really strong. And I said, well, yeah, I kind of have to be, if I wasn't, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. Professionally. Like we do this for hours on end, man. Yeah, 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 it can make you sweat. There are some days you get done and you feel like you got sent through the ringer. <laughs> you know, I one of my poor med students. Um, so no, not every osteopath um, works as aggressively or as not aggressively. Like again, there's different techniques for different scenarios and builds. And as a matter of your physiology and your anatomy, you're going to bias towards different techniques. For example, one of our colleagues, extremely skilled with her hands. Honestly, she's probably better than me on all parameters, but she's not nearly as strong, not a big deal. She uses a different set of techniques to get the same, if not better effect versus, you know, guy who deadlifts and punches things for fun. Um, <laughs> I can do a lot with my hands that she can't. And that's not a, that's not a better or worse. That's just, we're just, calibrated differently too. Yeah. And you, you work according to that calibration for sure. I've been I'm spending a lot of time doing uh, indirect techniques, so techniques away from the barriers lately, just just for the chance to see how it works. But um, going into the direct barrier position, adding strain and stress to the fascia actually heals people, and that's the crazy that's the crazy thing to think about. Even philosophically, we're adding strain to the system, and what what are you saying? The system is getting better. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Then the results speak for themselves. That's straight out of Dostoevsky, man. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, man. Yeah, we're, we're going early 20th century now. Russian lit's a goddamn nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> we're going some lit on, uh, on medicine now. That's Yeah, that's true. That is absolutely true. I was a philosophy guy before I lost the bet. You know that, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I do. But uh, okay, so literary name dropping aside, the idea is that uh, humans like what? Are, what the hell? We're not supposed to be comfortable. We suck at being comfortable as a species. We we were meant for struggle, uh, conceptually, like uh, in our in our wiring, in our programming, and we're saying that non metaphorically, explicitly. If we do not have a struggle, we fall apart. We need a fight in order to maintain as a system. Whether that fight is just the throes of life or it's an actual like battle, um, it turns out our system is designed for uh, long periods of rest and relative calm with moments of balls-to-the-wall exertion uh, with all of the little fluctuations in between. It's, um, 
we need to struggle. That, that's, need to struggle. that's what it is. Well, and if you come to us and see us in the clinic, we'll make sure you struggle. But it'll be a good struggle, and it'll be a healing struggle. That's the thing about it is what we do is directed. It's it's not just willy-nilly, just, hey, we're just going to throw some things at you and see how you can do. No, we are talking to your your fascia through our hands, figuring out where the fascia needs to go, where the strain is located, and then we therapeutically strain it so that it feels better. That's That's the great thing about it. Cool. All right, we are like an hour in. How do you feel? Well, uh, I think we, I think we hit this nail on the head. So we'll, we will end up with today's to remember: therapeutic stress is good stress. And thanks for joining us on Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast, where we talk about your body, your health, and how to fix it. Rolling Bones. The Osteopathic Podcast is brought to you by Dr. James Aston and Dante Paredes. We'd like to note that medicine is a constantly changing science and art with various approaches from practitioner to practitioner. This podcast represents the Roland Bones doctor's views of osteopathic medicine and OMT and will be as evidence-based as possible. Now, comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors are welcome, but no money from drug or device companies is accepted. By listening to this podcast, you agreed not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including, but not limited to, patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This applies to the hosts, guests, and contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall James Aston, Dante Paredes, or any guests or contributors to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. Please visit us on Twitter at Rollin' Bones Pod or send us messages at rollinbonespod at gmail.com. Thank you.